and seem to do the trick. Um, I've found these songs we've been singing this morning uh, very fitting for continuing along in our series, um, Tried and True, going through the book of James. Um, and we're going to be in uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 11 this morning. So you can open to that um, in your Bible. I should have got what page that is in the Pew Bible. Still trying to figure out all this logistics stuff I'm supposed to do when I come up here. Um, We're going to be continuing on where Dale Ward um, finished in our last weekend. And we're going to be focusing on this statement, you're not God. And I think it's so fitting for me with these songs we're singing, um, magnifying our God and recognizing that he is our God. And how fitting this is to us going through this morning, hopefully through this passage from James, exploring the many ways that we ourselves are not God. But I think that there's some very... um, sinister and underlying ways that we can think of ourselves as God or treat ourselves as God, even unbeknownst to ourselves. Um, We have a tendency as humans to ignore very obvious realities, and when we go ahead and do this, it often results in disaster. And I'm sure you've heard stories of many disasters that have seemed completely avoidable if people would just listen or just see the signs, but we all tend to fall um, into this pattern. And I have an unfortunate story about uh, this this morning, that is the Beverly Hills Supper Club fire. Um, And this took place in uh, 1977, May 28th. Over a thousand people had gathered at this club to hear a man named John Davidson perform. That name probably means more to some of you than it does to me. Um, I know he was born far before I was. And unfortunately, during one of the opening acts of John Davidson's night, a fire had broke out actually in another portion of the building. But the thousand people that were gathered in there waiting for him to perform had no idea that this fire was going on. But there was one person that had become aware of the fire. It was an 18-year-old busboy named Walter Bailey. He was outside of the building and saw smoke starting to billow up from the building. Obviously, he's deeply concerned for everyone in there, so he storms into the building. He goes, he finds his supervisor, and he says, there's a fire in the building. We've got to give everyone out now. And his supervisor thought he was playing a joke on him. Now, you've got to give the supervisor credit. Maybe Walter Riley was quite the prankster, and so he thought that he was just pulling another one of his jokes. But he turned around and walked away from Walter, giving him no time or ear listening to his concern. So Walter knew he didn't have time, so he stormed into the hall, and made his way straight to the front of the stage and interrupted one of the opening acts. And he grabbed the mic, and I would assume he probably tapped it away to make sure that it was working, even though the guy before him was probably just using it. Um, And he directed everyone. He said, I need you to see the three doors that are in this room. There's a door on the left side, the middle, and on the right side. All three of these are exits, and I need you all in a single-file manner to get out of the building immediately because a fire has broken out. So you'd think great, Walter's going to have saved everyone's life. And so Walter bolts it out, leads the way. The unfortunate part is that there was only a few people that got up confusingly out of their seats and followed Walter out of the building during that time. Majority kept sitting there because they couldn't smell the fire, they couldn't see the fire, they couldn't hear the fire. There was no immediate danger to them. And besides, they hadn't even got to see John Davidson perform yet, so they might as well chance it and wait it out. We may think how silly this is. And eventually, smoke poured into the room, and the fire got so out of hand that it cut out the power in the hall, and then pandemonium ensued as everyone's scrambling in the dark to try 
to get out. And sadly, 165 people lost their lives that day in what seems to be a completely avoidable tragedy. Like I said, we may be sitting here this morning wondering, why don't we listen to the warning signs? Why wouldn't they see the obvious warning before them to get out of the building now and think, probably should just get out of the building so I don't get engulfed by flames? But sadly, I think humans have a tendency to think more higher of themselves than they ought, more higher than their knowledge than they ought, and more higher, than, than, more higher of their understanding of this world than they ought. And it can put us in positions such as this with disaster. And I think in our passage this morning, we're going to walk through and we're going to see four ways that James lays out before us of battles that we have in our hearts, obvious truths that we can see in our lives that sometimes we tend to ignore, and we fight with God for these things. We battle him and are at a tug of war with him, wanting these things to be something that we control when it falls in his hands. We can be like these people, ignoring the warning signs that God has laid out for us this morning. And so, will you join me as we read James 4.11? I will start here. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks judgment against a brother or sister judges them and speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go from this, from this city to that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Will you join me in a word of prayer as we consider our God's word this morning? God, we come before you, and I pray that you humble our hearts this morning to recognize your position as the God of our lives. And I pray that from our hearts would well up this desire to want to magnify you. And I thank you for these words that James has written to us. And may your spirit work through my heart and in the hearts of all the peoples in this room to reveal a truth to them this morning from your word. And that they would leave from this place feeling more drawn to you and compelled by your spirit pray that you would be present and that you would speak through me during this time, Lord. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, as I had said before, I have four realities about our human condition that we seem to tug at God with and seem to think that we can replace God in these ways. But there's obvious qualities about us humans that disqualify us from being God, obviously. The first is that you're not God, you're a slanderer. James makes this address and makes this point in the first section of verse 11. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. So, a couple important things. James says, brothers and sisters. So he's not addressing this out to all the people of the world. It's an intimate address, particularly to his brothers and sisters in Christ. So he's laying out the warning to Christians to not slander. 
And what is slandering? You know, it's speaking in a way that damages someone's reputation. We may think here this morning, you know, I wouldn't be one to slander people. And I was thinking, do I really have a tendency to slander? And as I thought more, I think about my thoughts and my words. Have I ever found myself talking behind someone's back or thinking behind someone's back about particular hunches I have about their character based on the actions that I see them carry out in their day-to-day lives? We think, see a rich person. That person has a lot of money. I doubt they're generous enough and they're giving at church. We see a young couple and we may think, I don't know, I've got a feeling. I wonder if they're having premarital sex. Then we see another family's got a couple of crazy kids and they're like, their kids are crazy. Obviously, they're not raising their kids up how they should be and instructing them in God's word as godly parents. See, we may think that we wouldn't be prone to slander, but when we consider our actions, our thoughts, and our words, this is a lot more underlying trait of us humans than we would suppose. Slandering to other people doesn't come down to if our hunches about them are right or wrong. We can be completely correct about what we presuppose about them. But our underlying and behind-the-back talking is more like the attitude of the Pharisees than our Lord Jesus Christ. And so James is giving us a warning this morning to be on guard against our temptation to slander. Because from our temptation to slander, we're revealing a true desire in our hearts to make it feel as though we are superior to our brothers and sisters around us. We want to put them down in order to elevate ourselves and think that we can sit down looking over them. James touches on this point as he goes into the rest of verse 11. Anyone who judges or speaks against a brother or sister judges them and speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. Think of it like a little judge with their hammer tapping it on the table, telling people all the things that they're doing wrong. The problem is is that we are sinful judges. We don't have any place to feel like we can sit on the judgment seat telling people what they're doing wrong in our lives when sin is just as pervasive in ours. But for a moment, when we take a seat on that judgment seat, we feel as though we're like God, and we rob God of his position as judge in our lives. See, we're not needed to carry out judgment in this world. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the soul, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So if we have the word of God before us this morning, capable of carrying out judgment directing us how we should live as Christians and instructing us how to live in our day-to-day lives, what would make us think that we need to elevate ourselves above other people and tell them, you're doing this wrong. You've got to live like me. No, you've got to live like Jesus. You've got to come to Jesus and let him make you new. Don't direct people to try to live like yourself. Direct them to live like Jesus. See, in this We show our desire to make ourselves the example for other people, for ourselves to be as though like the God that people should strive to be after. We want people to feel like they're sitting under us, condemned, just like how it was in the Old Covenant. But God's law has taken a transition. What does Romans 8, 1 and 2 say? 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives you life has set you free from the law of sin and death. To all of us and our brothers and sisters sitting here this morning, when God looks at us, he sees someone washed by the blood of Jesus, free from the condemnation. There can be a tendency in our hearts to want to heap condemnation onto our brothers and sisters' shoulders. And this is when we are speaking evil against the law that James is describing here in our passage this morning. We've got to see our brothers and sisters are humans just like us, all on a journey together, striving to try to become more like Jesus. We shouldn't be pulling them behind us to try to get ahead, but instead pushing their backs as we're all on a journey towards our Savior. You're not God. You're a follower of an amazing God. And you've got to be on the same team as your brothers and sisters as you're on that journey. Our second point for this morning in verse 12 is that you're not God. You're powerless. James gets into this as we go into verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? In this, James is clear about two positions that Jesus holds in our lives. He is the lawgiver who is able to save and the judge who is able to destroy. In order for us to require some sort of saving, some sort of error and judgment needed to fall on our shoulders based on what we had done. And again, the scriptures are clear about this. Romans 7, 5 says that we were all in the realm of flesh at one time. Our sinful passions were aroused by the law and were at work in us. And by our works, we bore the fruit of death. By our actions, we subjected ourselves to death. By our actions, we brought judgment upon our shoulders. And no way by our actions will we find any way that we can save ourselves from this judgment. Despite this reality, many people, and even Christians today, think of themselves as good people. A 2021 survey by the Barna Group in the States, which studies you know, Christian thought and Christian culture as a whole, shows just how pervasive this idea actually is. In this, they found that there was 176 million people that would describe themselves as a Christian in the United States of America. And amongst these people describing themselves as Christian, 58% or 102 million people thought that if a person is good enough, they can earn their salvation to heaven by their good works. This is, stands in stark contrast to what the Bible teaches. It is by no way, by anything that we can do, that we bring ourselves anywhere closer to Jesus, anywhere closer, sorry, to salvation. And we can only find this in the work that Jesus has done. I'm sure many of us are in complete agreement with this this morning and hopefully wouldn't fall into the people polling that we would save ourselves by our works. However, I think that there's a variety of ways, again, underlying, that our lives seem to maybe tell a different story about what we believe. Think about it, and these are self-reflective questions that I had for myself. Does your faith depend on the unchanging promises of Jesus? Or does it flip-flop back and forth based on your day-to-day -day life, thinking of 
you've lived as a good or bad Christian through the day? Are you 100% certain and assured that your salvation is in Jesus alone and doesn't depend on the good outweighing the bad when you get to the end of your life? Do you ever find yourself tempted to compare your actions to your brothers and sisters around you to ensure that outwardly, at least, you're appearing more like a Christian than them? Or do you ever look out into this world and think how people could be so evil without thinking that had it not been for Jesus and the work of the Spirit, you would be walking in the exact same shoes as them? It can be so tempting to want to attach our names, our works, our doings to this salvation that we're celebrating here this morning. But our passage is clear. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. And it's not Brandt. It's not any of you sitting in this room. It's Jesus. We can only look and see that in our position as humans, we are inhabiting a place of powerlessness. And our only response to this is to fall on our knees before our God and recognize that it's solely because of him that we can have any sort of deliverance. One of my favorite stories about this, just showing this attitude, is in Luke 7, 36 to 50. It's a story of Jesus being anointed by the sinful woman. You have Jesus sitting in a room with a bunch of Pharisees enjoying dinner. And this dinner is interrupted by this woman that falls in before Jesus, crying, wiping his feet with her tears, anointing his feet because she knew how wretched she was. And you have the Pharisees sitting in the room, appalled that Jesus would even let someone like this touch him. And they were all feeling so smug and superior to her and looking down and thanking God that they weren't a sinner like her. And in a shocking change of events, Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. He forgives the sinner, the one that saw that they were powerless, the one that fell down at his feet. And he mentions nothing about forgiving those Pharisees sitting there looking down at that woman. So the question is this morning, do we find ourselves more like the woman bursting in the room aware of our sinfulness, falling down at Jesus, admitting that we're powerless? Or do we find ourselves sitting like the Pharisees in the side of the room, looking out at the people around us and thanking God that we're not like them, but in that revealing just how dead we are in our smugness? As we go on to our third point of the morning. James continues to hammer away at um, our human condition. Going on to verse 13, James goes into this third point. You're not God, you're temporal. Says, now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there and carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will do this or that. In this section, James addresses three limitations that we have as humans in our temporal nature. First off, we're we're, um, temporal based on our limited knowledge of the future. 
We're also temporal based on our limited time here on earth. And finally, we're temporal in the limited control that we have in our lives. Despite these limitations that we have as humans, we can spend a tremendous amount of time figuring out what we're going to do in this life, how we're going to do it, and what's going to be in store for the future. And James is addressing this exact problem in the epistle this morning. It's likely that James' address was made towards a variety of businessmen and merchants that were in the church at that time and had been traveling around city to city, making profits wherever they went for a short time and then moving on to the next place. They supposed that wherever they would go, they would be successful. Now this begs an important question. Is planning bad? Is it something we shouldn't do? Now my planners in the room can let out your exhales now. We're allowed to plan, and I'm thankful for that because I'm definitely a planner in my life. But what James is addressing isn't the action of planning, but instead the intent behind planning. Why do we plan? These men and women in this church were planning because they supposed that they had the world figured out, that they had the future figured out, and they thought five years from now, we're going to have gone through five towns, we're going to have made this much money, and we're going to have found success wherever we went. We've got this game of life figured out. You can see pride starting to slip into their lives and their hearts' attitudes. And we know, us sitting here this morning, many of us can say how foolish it is to think that we know what the future holds. Life is rarely predictable and always changing day after day. If we set plans in stone, we know that they're just going to get smashed up and thrown out the window. However, we still do it again and again. And I get reminders of how much life can change, but I still try to just set up plans and hold on to them so tightly in my life. It's like it's always a part of my nature. James continues to expose our temporal nature as humans as he goes into verse 14. You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while. When looked at in comparison to the unmeasurable amount of time that we know as eternity, our life here on earth really does appear like a mist. It's here for a moment, gone the next, and it's just as delicate as a mist as well. It can be wiped away at any time. It's crazy how fragile life is and how critical it is and how often we downplay the importance of each day that we come and live in this world. And additionally, we can forget and ignore how quickly we can go from living to dying. I have a picture of an ambulance on the screen, and um, the sirens of an ambulance while working at a hospital are never a good thing. Um, as working as a respiratory therapist over the last two years, I've heard sirens blaring, pulling up to the hospital, and paramedics working on the body of a 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 year old. Death doesn't discriminate on anyone based on their age. And these people can be healthy. And as they come into us, we as a team are executing to our best ability the attempt to try to bring them back to life. 
And despite doing all the things right, I've stood over many people as they've passed on from this life into the next. And my heart sinks every time I see this take place. And I'm reminded that death in this life is unavoidable and completely unpredictable. But I can see myself so unbothered by these reminders as I go through my day-to-day life I experience that transition before my eyes and go on still trusting on my own desires and my own plans. And an event like this became much more of a reality for me on July 31st when myself and the Rupert family were made aware of Ben's serious motorcycle accident. And I remember hearing that call and hearing that Ben was transported with Orange and um, I knew how serious it was at that time when I heard that he was being moved in that way and I thought that I might not see Ben alive again. And I was reminded how in an instant life can change going from living to dying. And by the grace of God, Ben is still here today as a testimony to God's faithfulness But I know that there's few here this morning that have lost a loved one. But I know that we can take hope that there's life beyond life here on earth. And um, these people serve as a reminder that we're not going to live here forever. And we've got to make this life count. And we've got to live each and every single day on our knees before our God In a moment, we can see our lives translate from this temporal life here on earth into an eternal reality. We see our hands, we see our lives fall out of our hands, out of our tight control that we want to have and in the hands of our creator in heaven. And he's shown from the start that he has wanted us. He's been calling us home to him. And he died in order to give us an opportunity to be with him forever. Jesus Christ serves as evidence that God wants us with him. And in all of this in my life, I know that the only right response is submission, falling down on my knees and knowing that no matter what comes, as verse 15 says, if it is the Lord's will, we will do this or that. By this submission, our view of the world is transformed from one that is temporal and fading into one that is eternal and vibrant. Death no longer becomes the end of the story. And this mist of a life that we are now living in becomes more meaningful than we could ever imagine. It was one so meaningful that the Son of God thought it was worthy of himself to enter into, to redeem it. And so we need to fight against this temptation in our lives to ignore this reality and see each day we have on this earth as a gift from God as we humble our lives before him. And this takes us into our final point of the passage this morning. You're not God, you're prideful. As it is, in verse 16, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Sitting here this morning, you may be asking the same question as myself that I'm asking this morning as I'm standing up here at the front. 
if we are aware of all these things and all that God has done for us, what would make us possibly be tempted in any way to not fall on our knees before him? And it's our greatest weakness, our pride, the desire to trust in ourselves more than we trust in our God. Verse 16 and 17 have put this pride on full display. And here James highlights two attitudes that can arise from our pridefulness as humans. The first that he addresses is boasting in our actions. And this was the very thing taking place in the hearts of the merchants and businessmen in the time of James. As I'd said before, they thought that they had life figured out, that they had everything under control. It's as though they themselves were like God, holding all things in their hands. We see a stern warning about the attitude of pride and how dangerous it is because a prideful attitude such as this is the very one that Satan displayed and that led to his fall. Isaiah 14 describes this. How fallen from heaven are you, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who, are weak, who have weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, and I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the Most High. It's as though Satan knew that we possessed the very weakness he did, and he exposed this absolutely in the garden. And looking at myself, I can see this temptation tugging at my heart at times, this desire to want to be like the most high in my life. I can make my own plans and suppose that because of my knowledge, nothing's ever going to fail. And then when things don't go according to my plans, I turn around and shake my fist at God and ask him why he wouldn't give me the things that I want when I want them. So the question is, are we under God's authority? Or do we think that he should be under our authority? Would our actions stand as a testimony to being under him? Would they stand as a testimony to our hearts wanting to be like the most high? In our hearts, Satan would love to undermine the authority of God with our pride. He's been doing it from the beginning. And James is giving us a warning to be on guard against this attitude in our hearts today. And there's another action that stems from our pridefulness that James touches on this morning. In verse 17, he says, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. What James is describing here is something known as a sin of omission. These are the things that arise when we fail to do the things we know that we ought to do, fail to do the things that the Bible calls us to do as followers of Jesus. By us not doing the things that we're commanded to do in Scripture, we're again revealing that we care more about our heart, about our desires and our needs than what the Bible calls us to and what God has commanded. And it only serves as further evidence that we are weak and we can be subject to pride. Now you may be asking, you know, what are the actions that fall under the sins of omission? And I can give you a couple of examples from my life. It didn't take me long 
to figure out the sins of omission that I commit regularly. First off, I've been reluctant to read God's word for a day, a week, a month, at periods in my life, despite it being described as the lamp to my feet and light to my path. I've repeatedly driven past people begging on corners for money as I'm coming home from work without the thought crossing my mind about how I can love them compassionately and show them the compassion that Jesus has called me to. I've shied away from telling people about Jesus at work, at school, and in my day-to-day life, despite this being commanded of me in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And I've neglected meeting together, as Hebrews 10.25 describes. Can thank my friend Alex Martin for exposing this reality for me, as he sent me a message this last week asking me where I'd been the past month, which was evidence that I hadn't actually been here at Wallenstein in over a month's time. And I'm thankful for friends like Alex that are willing to call me out, but it was evidence to me that I hadn't been here because of other things going on in life, other weekend plans, and also finding myself working on weekends. In all these things, I'm realizing I'm an active and passive sinner, incapable of doing anything to save myself by my righteousness and my doing. I'm sitting in the group of a slandering, temporal, powerless and prideful people. This is only the reality, though, if we let our flesh be the ultimate ruler of our hearts. See, all these things this morning stand as stark evidence that we are in need of a Savior, that there was a reason that Jesus had to come to this earth to give us redemption, to come near to the true God, Jesus, walking on this earth, counting us slandering, temporal, powerless and prideful beings somehow as worthy of his sacrifice despite having done nothing to earn or deserve this gift. Jesus took himself to the extent of dying on a cross for us, each of us in this room. He wants you in his presence forever and he wants his spirit to invade your heart and begin making you new or taking you on that journey further than you are today. See, Jesus Christ was a lot like Walter, well, <laughs> shouldn't say. Walter Bailey gave us a warning a lot like Jesus Christ has. He told us about the exits to get out of the burning building. And our temptation is to be like the people in the building that night, supposing that we can't smell the fire, we can't see the fire, we can't feel the fire, and so we might as well ignore the warning that Jesus has given us. But a day is going to come in life when we will come to the end of life as we know it here on earth. And as I've said before, we translate from this reality into one that is eternal. And Jesus Christ is going to be waiting and hoping that he will welcome you into his arms. And so my desire this morning is that we would all consider all that Christ has done for us to make us new in him and that we would relate or we would relay our heart's desire like that woman that burst into the room falling at the feet of Jesus, sobbing and crying and kissing and anointing him for all that he has done to make us new and spare us from the judgment that we rightfully deserve. 
Isn't that such a fitting song to close out our morning here together? My hope is that your heart and mine continue to be drawn towards our God, that we find ourselves compelled to fall down at his feet. To close out our morning, I want to read Psalm 25, written by David. It's a form of a prayer for all of us, and I pray that our hearts would reflect the heart of David that he put down on this paper many years ago. Will you join me in a word of prayer to close out our morning? In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. But shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior. And my hope is in you all the day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. Good and upright is the Lord, and therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. All the ways of my Lord are loving and faithful towards those who keep the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in the ways they should choose. They will spend their days in prosperity, and their descendants will inherit this land. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on my Lord, for only he will release my feet from this snare. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am a lonely and afflicted. O God, relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. Look on my affliction and my distress and my sins and take them all away. See how numerous are my enemies in this world and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame, for I take refuge in you, my Lord. May your integrity and uprightness protect me, because my hope, Lord, is in you. Amen. That concludes our morning. I'll be sitting down here at the front. Um, if you have any questions or any discussion you'd like to have, please come find me or find someone here at Wallenstein to have any sort of conversation with. Um, it was a blessing to be in your presence here again. Um, and may you have a blessed week.